International Relations Committee. And thank you to all of you who are joining us on Zoom and also in Omaha for what I'm sure will be a very fascinating, interesting and informative conversation. And thank you to uh, Mark as well for being here. So without further ado, I'd like to turn this over to a member of my committee, Bhavya Shah, as well as the co-chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee with whom we are co-sponsoring this event. So thank you to MCAC as well. And the chair of that committee is uh, Cheryl Cummings. So I will turn it now to Bhavya and Cheryl to guide our conversation. Okay, thank you so much, Maria. This is Cheryl Cummings. And as Maria said, I'm the co-chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee. And we are so honored and pleased to have this opportunity to co-sponsor this um, afternoon session. Uh, as Maria mentioned, this is our uh, informal sort of conversation where we hope to get to know Mr. Workman better and to learn even more about the work of the uh, World Blind Union. So welcome everyone. And um, thank you so much for being here. Mr. Workman, are you with us? I'm indeed, hello. Ah, welcome. I'm so glad that uh, you're able to join us. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question which uh, I know you talked a little bit about this morning, but I was told that some of the folks who were on Zoom or, or who were listening in couldn't hear you. So I apologize if this sounds a little repetitious, but we really would like to get to know you. So. Can you start off by talking with us a little bit about um, your, your path to becoming the CEO of the World Wine Union? Absolutely. And I will just start by um, thanking you and the others for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I am here in Omaha and would love to be downstairs, uh, but I unfortunately did test positive for COVID. So with the interest of keeping everyone else safe, I will be... Um, isolating in the hotel room as much as possible. I've been traveling a lot lately, so it feels kind of inevitable, but the timing is uh, really unfortunate. I would much rather be with everyone um, in person. So um, my path to becoming the CEO of the World Blind Union, and I actually won't end up repeating too much from this morning, although I will, um, I ended up talking more about my educational journey this morning. And I'm gonna talk now about my career journey and I will touch on my education as well. So really, I effectively had two distinct careers. So one was with CNIB, that's the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. It's a primarily a service providing organization in Canada, but also does advocacy as well. And so in, in that role, and I ended up actually working there twice with, a, with about a five-year gap between the two um, times with CNIB. And I did things like government relations, communications, um, stakeholder relations, where I worked with the various consumer groups, um, developed advocacy position statements, uh, worked with government, those types of activities. Um, and I did it for about three years, three and a half years the first time. And um, was actually focused partly nationally. Um, so issues uh, that affected or that were under the federal jurisdiction in Canada. And then I also spent some time working for the province of Alberta for the CNIB North Alberta Northwest Territories Division. So that was sort of, I think of that as kind of one career in the nonprofit 
uh, blindness field. Uh, but then I ended up um, leaving CNIB and joining the Alberta Public Service. So Alberta's a province in Canada, and I worked for the government, but on the public service side, so not the not the political side. And I really bounced around quite a bit. I was always looking for different opportunities. And so I worked for numerous departments within the government of Alberta. But the general kind of um, type of work that I did would be around research, policy development. I wrote a lot of uh, briefing notes for ministers and for deputy ministers and that sort of thing. I, um, I managed projects. I did a lot of writing. In, in those roles and eventually ended up in management role with the government of Alberta. Um, none of, um, it was interesting because none of my jobs with the government had anything to do with disability, <clears throat> excuse me, which was kind of what I was interested in, sort of doing work um, that, that wasn't necessarily disability focused. Now, don't get me wrong, I still had a lot of passion for those issues and I ended up volunteering a lot within the government to promote disability, um, to promote more inclusion and accessibility. So I co-founded the Disability Employee Resource Group, for example, where we, um, we basically gathered all of the people who identified as, as having a disability within the government to form kind of a loose network where we could share experiences, speak with a bit of a collective voice. It's a very large organization in and around 30,000 employees. And so having that network was helpful to ensure that um, that the government operated in a more accessible way, internally speaking, right? Making sure that their internal software and, and things like that were, were accessible. So disability was always still a part of my, my work, but primarily volunteer. Related to that, I did actually, I, I've always volunteered a lot. I think this morning in the bio, it said for the last uh, 15 years, I've been involved in disability kind of advocacy as a volunteer. Um, lots of different organizations, some blindness specific, some that were more um, um, disability focused, cross disability organizations. So yeah, those are like the two um, career kind of paths uh, plus some volunteer work. My educational background is in political science, um, which is a good fit for working for the government. I have a, a master's in political science, and I did end up doing about half a PhD in philosophy. Uh, and I say half a PhD, I was planning to do uh, the whole thing and then to work in academia. That was sort of my first plan for a career. But when I ended up getting a job with CNIB, the, the full-time job, I just realized like, this is really more what I want to do. I want to do the more practical, hands-on advocacy, trying to um, improve things, make things more accessible. So I ended up um, withdrawing from, from the program and focusing on an, a, an alternative career. Now I applied for the WBU CEO position thinking it would be a long shot. Um, I, I, I felt like I had a lot of the right skills and experience when it came to disability and blindness, um, government relations, being a good communicator, those types of skills. But the international side was an area that I hadn't worked in uh, very much. And so I was, I, I threw my hand in the ring thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll get an interview, good chance to maybe network and maybe um, meet some folks and who knows, you never know. So why not, why not give it a shot? Um, in my view, I actually don't think I had a very good first interview. 
Um, you never know with these things. It is hard to, to judge, but when afterwards I thought, oh, that was not, that was not a good interview. Um, and so I was sort of resigning myself to the fact that it probably wasn't going to go anywhere. And they ended up doing a second interview. And so I made the, the short list. And then the final task was a written assignment. And I thought, okay, well, now I have a shot because uh, that's probably one of my biggest areas of strength is, is writing. And so um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, at this point, well, I might, I might just have a shot. And uh, it turned out that they were, uh, they agreed and they ha were happy with my written assignment and ended up getting, giving me the job or offering me the job. And I started in January of this year. So it's been just over six months that I've been in the role and it's been a really wonderful experience um, so far. So that's uh, a little bit about how I ended up in, in that role. Wow. It's pretty exciting. I mean, quite an interesting path, a combination of disability, sort of volunteer work and government service and bringing that together. So we have another question that I'd love to ask you. And I recognize you, as you said, you've only been doing the job for about six months. But anyway, here we go. Uh, what do you believe are the top two or three challenges facing the blind community globally? Yeah, no, it's a, a very good question. And I did jot down a few things. And I would say my view is that they're not that different than the challenges you might face here in America or where I'm from in Canada, although they may be a little bit more exaggerated or extreme in certain um, countries. So one example might be around cities that can't easily be navigated. I was in um, Nairobi in May and I was talking to some different blind folks there and I would ask them like, are you able to, to get around independently? Are blind people like, do you, do you see them out in the street? Are they wandering around and, and able to get from one place to another? And the answer is not really. Um, it is just quite dangerous in um, a city like that in terms of you may end up having, not having sidewalks, for example. And I know, you know we sometimes deal with that here, uh, but you might have open sewers or just dangerous um, hazards that make it a little risky for someone to navigate. And I think that that issue is quite common in these large um, African cities that have really grown very quickly and haven't always um, been planned in the way that makes the cities more accessible. I also think that um, driving can be a challenge, not, not for blind people, obviously, but navigating the streets in a city where um, drivers are super aggressive and, um, and so there, there are risks around getting around independently. And so I say that it's similar, right? I think, you know, mobility is an, is an issue that blind people face in, in all kinds of countries, but I do think in some areas, it's a little more extreme, the challenges um, that are faced. I think another one might be employment. Um, I know for sure in Canada, this is an issue that we've always talked about and always been trying to increase and improve employment prospects uh, for people who are blind. And um, I would say that that's an issue in, in most countries. Uh, one exception that I think is kind of interesting is in Spain, there's an organization called ONCE, and it is a very large and wealthy organization. Um, basically, back in the 30s, they were given 
kind of oversight over the lottery in Spain. And as a result, um, there, there are a lot of assets that the organization owns, a lot of you know, things like hotels or radio broadcasters or communications companies. So it's, it's just a massive operation um, in Spain. And they've also done a great job of making sure that they hire a lot of people with disabilities, um, a lot, largely blind people, but not exclusively blind people, you know, employing them in, in their hotels and in their other um, large organizations. So that's one where I think actually um, employment has been, uh, the employment numbers are higher. Now you might say, well, that's fine, but you do end up having to work primarily for this one organization. So, um, so that's a little different. Although I would say once you, you know, I think we, we all recognize that oftentimes once you get your foot in the door, you get some experience under your belt. Um, actually, similar to what I had just mentioned, like I worked for CNIB, the blindness organization, got developed my skills, um, showed that I was capable and then moved on to sort of non-disability roles. And so that is something that can happen um, as well. So employment, um, I would say, here's one that I think is a little bit unique to other countries, and that would be around conflict or disaster risk reduction or climate change emergencies. So um, there are, we, we know a fair bit about Ukraine and I talked a bit about that this morning. And that's a situation where obviously due to the, to the war that a lot of people are, are struggling, um, but that's not the only conflict in the world. Um, I've heard from people in Yemen, in Syria who are who are struggling and so that's a kind of a unique challenge um, globally that is being that is being faced disaster risk reduction is the idea um, that when we see things like natural disasters or other um, major disasters that we are creating plans and responses that are inclusive right it'd be it's very easy I think for people to like decision makers, policy makers to make their plans for response without thinking about disability. And so that, that, that is an issue you see in um, lots of other parts of the world where they're facing different types of, of natural disasters. And kind of related to that is climate change um, and some of the, the challenges that are associated with that. So flooding or uh, really hot temperatures or fires or things like that, that are affecting I mean, they're really, they're affecting everyone. Um, we in Canada have major issues around forest fires and things like that. Uh, but we do see some of these extreme emergencies related to climate change in, in other countries. And again, what happens I think is the plans are not always inclusive. They're not always taking into account um, how you might, how your plan might need to adapt or be responsive to someone in a wheelchair or someone who's deaf or someone who's blind. So that's sort of um, a few of the, the kinds of issues that I think um, are, like I say, not totally unique to other countries, but maybe just a little bit, bit more extreme in some of these other countries. Thank you. And, and I, I've got to say, I, you know, I live in Boston and that last issue you mentioned is something that I know the disability community we've been working with, our city government, on sort of making the same point <laughs> that yes. when you think about emergency uh, release, relief, you really need to make sure that people with disabilities are part of the planning process. Um, so, and as you said, the other topics around employment and just general safety and being able to move around freely 
is something that, um, you know, as you mentioned, I think we all encounter that to some extent. Um, but as you mentioned, probably in more sort of intense degrees in other parts of the world. So thank you so much. And I am now going to turn this over to my uh, other co-facilitator, Bavia from IRC. Hello. Thank you so much, Mr. Workman, for sharing about all of your thoughts and perspectives about your extensive background in areas related to blindness, rehabilitation, and advocacy, as well as others that have parallels, and also for sharing about your thoughts on the challenges confronting the blind. Uh, just to briefly introduce myself, my name is Bhavya Shah, and I serve on the International Relations Committee. If the accent doesn't already give it away, I come from India. I do study in the US though. I'm a rising junior at Stanford University, majoring in mathematical and computational science. And I'm so excited to have the opportunity to chat with you and honestly, to geek out with you a little more. And you'll <laughs> understand what I mean by that very shortly. One of the things that I would like to sort of begin with is understanding your source background in blindness in and of itself. Do you have any sort of blindness or eye condition yourself. And in particular, you as someone who did half a PhD program in philosophy, what is your outlook on it? That is to say, do you view blindness as a value neutral characteristic or a limitation whose effects we seek to minimize? And what are your thoughts on say, for instance, the social and medical model of disability? Mm -hmm. So perhaps a little bit on your blindness and then your outlook on it. I would love to hear more on that. Great, yeah, no, that's a great question. So my uh, the condition that led to me becoming blind, I have is called retinitis pigmentosa, which is um, fairly common. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's even listening to this that has that condition. Um, as I, I mentioned this earlier this morning though, um, my version of it, I think was a little more aggressive than others in that I was diagnosed quite young. I was about five years old and, and just um, in kindergarten when I was diagnosed and then I became legally blind by around the age of 10 and lost a lot of the rest of my sight as a teenager. And um, so that's sort of my, my connection to blindness. At this point, I have uh, light perception in one eye and nothing, no uh, sight at all in the, in the other eye. Um, now the question about my sort of perspective on blindness and uh, whether it's a neutral characteristic. I think, like I say, it's a very interesting one, one that I've definitely spent a lot of my time and even some of my academic research um, thinking about and thinking through. I would, I would say when I was in my early 20s and just starting university, I definitely had a different attitude than I ended up with after my education. Um, I would have been much more of a, um, having a more of a medical model attitude about it. I thought it was something that I wouldn't want to have kids, for example, because I wouldn't want to, to pass it on. Um, and um, through conversations with other blind people, through exposure to blindness organizations and advocacy organizations, and through reading about the social model, I ended up, um, I would say my attitude did evolve over time. And so now I do for sure view blindness as um, largely 
if not entirely, uh, an issue of how the built environment is designed, about attitudes, um, that sort of thing. I will say um, I've written papers in philosophy kind of challenging the social model a little bit. So the idea that um, disabilities are entirely social, um, I do think that there you can have some, you know, interesting conversations about, about that. Um, for example, you know, is there, a, is there a world that we could design that would make it so that whether you're blind or sighted makes absolutely no difference? I have a hard time, like theoretically speaking, sure, like, you know, uh, but I have a hard time imagining any actual world that could um, look like that. And so, you know, am I 100%, it's entirely social, there's no disadvantages, there's no um, challenges, probably not. But for me, I actually kind of ended up thinking a little differently about the question. So sometimes they'll ask you like, you know, come on, you got to admit that wouldn't you rather be uh, sighted than blind? Wouldn't you rather have your vision restored if you could? And I think the answer is probably yes. Um, but the other question that I think is more interesting is, wouldn't you rather have a world that was designed in such a way that people with disabilities can live the lives that they want, that is more inclusive and accessible versus a world where disability is completely gone, or there is no disability? And like, for me, I probably would choose a, a world that is you know, made up of a more diverse group of people, but that doesn't exclude them or restrict them from participating in their community. And so I kind of, that, that's the question that I end up talking to people about, or I think it's the more interesting question. And it's, it's definitely where I will put my efforts going forward. Like I could probably, you know, volunteer for some organization that's working for a cure. I could, I could do that type of work, but for me, I'd, I would rather focus my efforts on improving the accessibility, the inclusion within, within the world, trying to make it a more inclusive and accessible place so that we can have um, a wider diversity of people who are, who are still able to live the lives that they want. That is a really reasonable and balanced take, one that I agree with very vigorously. That is to say that the social model of disability, which emphasizes the limitations and challenges associated with disability to backward attitudes and to exclusionary societal design and the medical model of disability which recognizes that disability is perhaps non-ideal and if we could fix it, we probably should. And of course, all of us in the room and on the Zoom may have differing and evolving views on this, but this is certainly an ongoing conversation and I really appreciate your nuanced opinions on it. I want to then jump forward a little bit. The World Blind Union, of course, based on welfare for blind individuals around the world is ultimately an agglomeration of different organizations. So the boots on the ground are, as I understand it, more by the organizations that form the membership of the WBU. Given that, I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about how you at the WBU make sure that you remain somewhat in sync with people and remain individual and consumer facing. The ACB, for instance, is a member-driven organization itself, whereas the WBU's members are organizations. So if you could comment a little bit on how you make sure to have that direct human contact on the ground around the world. 
Yeah, another another interesting question. Um, you are correct that WBU is an organization made up of other organizations. Um, there's a couple of ways. Um, we have, uh, our structure is such that we're broken down into regions, into six different regions. Uh, I'll, I'll list them, but don't worry about remembering them. So we have Europe, we have North America, Caribbean, we have Latin America, we have Africa, and then there are two in Asia. There's Asia Pacific, which would be primarily more the kind of East Asia, um, and then Asia itself, which would include um, your home country of, of India, for example. So those are the six regions. And I think that is one way that we try to um, be a little bit closer to the organizations that make up the WBU. And what I mean by that is it creates an, a structure that's a little bit closer to those organizations in their local regions, as opposed to if we just had one giant um, world blind union that wasn't kind of broken up into regions. So for example, Kim Charlson is president of the North America Caribbean region. And there are there is a small executive uh, of people from this part of the world. And I think it allows those organizations to, to work together to provide us at the WBU with their thoughts on what we're doing in a way that's um, better than, again, if we didn't have that regional structure. So that's one way. I would say the General Assembly is another way. So the General Assembly happens every four years, um, but it, which, which may seem like um, a long time, but it's a, a massive undertaking, uh, a very expensive undertaking as well, where we bring delegates from countries all over the world to, to a specific location and conduct some of the business of World Blind Union. So adopting resolutions, amending the constitution, electing our table officers. Um, so that, that is another way. And I would just emphasize that we are um, a democratic organization. So each of those regional presidents and executive would be elected within the region. And of course, the what we call the table officers. So our president, first VP, second VP, secretary general and treasurer are also all elected by the members. So those are, those are a couple of ways in terms of our governance. I would say the other ways would be more around communications, um, creating opportunities for people to share their feedback. And for anyone who was able to listen this morning, I did say that this is an area that I think we can do better in. And, and it, there was three parts to it. One was us sharing with our members and the public what we're doing. The second was creating opportunities for our members to provide their feedback to us. Um, so that, that, that it's something that we do, but I think we can do better at it. And that, that will help us be more responsive to our members. And then the third way was creating opportunities for members to share and work, collaborate with each other, which I think is really a, the one of the fundamental roles of the WBU would be to be that bridge between organizations that might be working on similar topics or have similar interests, but wouldn't necessarily connect um, outside of the WBU. So that those are another, another set of er areas where I think um, we try to be more responsive, but you know, I fully admit we can always, we can always do better, but I, I do think that the structure and then communications would be, be a couple of ways that we, we try to be more um, 
member driven. Thank you so much for sharing that. So even if as individuals, we cannot have direct participation through delegations and for instance, our membership of the American Council of the Blind, which is a member organization of the World Blind Union, there definitely are ways to participate. And I'm really pleased to hear about the ways in which you're trying to increase the extent to which communication and collaboration is fostered among your members. Mm -hmm. One of the other things, speaking of collaboration and building bridges, is that blindness, just like any other characteristic, always cuts across and intersects with other dimensions of one's identity. So that could be from people's race, nationality, to also other disabilities itself. So if you could comment a little bit on how the World Blind Union builds those bridges with intersecting identities by working perhaps in the cross-disability space in which you have had personally past experience prior to the WBU and also recognizing the intersectional nature of your work. Yeah, absolutely. So intersectionality is uh, a concept that has made it into our latest strategic plan. So it is something that we are taking seriously and trying to do some work um, in that space. A, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is we would have some committees that would be kind of have an intersectional focus. So like I think a lot of organizations um, in doing the work that we do, we do rely on volunteers to support the work. And um, one example of that would be committees and working groups. And so um, we're establishing some, the reason I say establishing is what happens is our committees are kind of shut down before the each general assembly and then they're started up. Um, the ideal would be shortly after the general assembly because we've had the change in leadership. We're certainly a little behind where we want to be, although I expect us to have some committees and working groups stood up over the summer. And just a couple of examples, we'll have a youth committee to try to understand the, the different um, challenges or issues that might face someone who's who's a youth and has uh, blindness or partial sight, we'll have a women's committee, we'll have a seniors committee, just as a couple of examples. But I will also say, as I mentioned, it, it is in the strategic plan. It's an area that we want to be doing more in and to ensure that everything we do has an intersectional lens that we that we take to it. So that's one thing. But you also mentioned collaborating with other disability organizations. And I think that is very important as well. And I was in uh, Greece just before coming to Omaha. And while I was there, I was meeting with an organization called the um, International Disability Alliance. So the World Blind Union is actually a founding member of the International Disability Alliance. It's a very important international organization. Effectively, their members are made up of 14 organizations, some that are disability specific, like the World Blind Union or the World Federation of the Deaf, the World Federation of the Deaf Blind, Inclusion International, which would be for people with intellectual disabilities, Down Syndrome International. So there's a number of sort of disability specific members of the International Disability Alliance. And then there are also a number of what we would call regional organizations. So 
Um, there is some, you know, there's the European Disabilities Forum, the Africa Disabilities Forum. There's a similar organization in Latin America. Actually kind of curious, there is no North American regional member. And I don't, I don't know enough about why that is, but there are, I think it's, I think it's six um, other regional organizations, one in Asia Pacific, um, the Arab Association of People with Disabilities, for example. So altogether 14 members that themselves are members or have organizations that are members. And so this is an organization that we work closely with. We are on the board. And when I was in Greece, we did have a workshop specifically on intersectionality. And they're, they're producing, they being International Disability Alliance is producing an intersectionality strategy that will help um, that the, their members, meaning WBU, can use in their work um, to support taking an intersectional lens um, in their work. So yeah, I hope, that, I hope that's helpful. Lots of collaboration with organizations uh, of people with disabilities and, and also um, trying to do some of that in our own work as well. I would like to specifically acknowledge how substantive and direct your responses are and how much I massively appreciate that from listing the committees and working groups that explore different parts of identities, the youth committee, women's committee and such to the WBU's role in the International Disability Alliance and the other workshops and efforts that you're involved in. It really sounds like intersectionality is something that is taken seriously. And for that, I think we're all very grateful. And also me being me, I'm going to make a plug for myself, youth committee, I'm a bit of a youth myself. I'm sending you connection requests on LinkedIn, Mr. Workman. Let's talk about this a little later. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, wonderful. But anyways, that aside, I think I have time for one final question before we open it up for the audience. And that really would be one thing. You have looked at how blindness, rehabilitation, and empowerment works around the world. All of us often stay in the United States and are constrained in our perspective by what we have access to here. What is one takeaway from what you have observed around the world that we as blind people in the United States should take to heart, should learn from, and should draw from, from our international blind peers? Mm. Yes, okay, that is, um, it's a good question, but it's a tough one for me, partly because of how uh, new I am in the role, but I will take a crack at it. Um, it's interesting too, though. I, I do want to acknowledge that there are for sure things that America can learn, but at the same time, um, I look at something like accessibility legislation, and that's something that the U.S. has had since 1990 in the form of the Americans with Disabilities Act. In Canada, we adopted similar legislation in 2019, so nearly 30 years later. And, and that's at the federal level. And really in Canada, because of the way we're structured, you need accessibility legislation at each province plus the federal level. And there are about half the provinces that, that still don't have it. Um, so, so all of that to say that um, there is, you know, certainly um, America is doing something right when it comes to accessibility legislation. And I think lots of other countries have um, since 1990 adopted similar legislation and are still doing so. Now, in terms of what America could learn, 
like I say, it's a tricky one. Um, this is okay. This is a controversial one, but I'll share it just as, as food for thought. I've seen in other countries and um, I think I mentioned this morning that uh, I was in Poland last week and I ended up meeting with our Polish member, um, which was a very interesting conversation. And we talked a little bit about employment and they told me that they use, um, and this is again, it's controversial, he used the word quota, that they have um, for organizations that reach a certain size, there are requirements to employ people with disabilities. And when an organization does so, then they do receive some subsidies to support them. Now, I totally recognize that some people will hear that and they'll think, you know, that's not right, it's not fair, should be based on your skills and your merit, et cetera, et cetera, which I fully appreciate. For me, you know, the question is, and I should say this, they're not the only ones that do it. I've, I've seen other countries, other, organ, um, yeah, other countries that will have a, a similar type of system. For me, the question is, does it work? And I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, it may be that it works sometimes or it works for a short period of time and then it, it doesn't really work. Um, but I think that's an area that, and, and forgive me, because I don't, you know, it's possible that there are some systems like this in the U.S., um, but I haven't, I haven't come across them, let's put it that way, whereas I have heard some other countries talking about them. So that might be an area, um, again, assuming that we do a little bit of research and, some, and confirm that it does actually work to increase the number of people who are in the job market who are blind. So that's one. One other one that's kind of more selfish for as from a WBU perspective is I see countries in primarily in Europe and primarily the Nordic countries that have really created um, an international focus as part of their work. So examples would be the Danish Association of the Blind or the Norwegian Association or the Swedish, Swedish Association that they actually set aside parts of their budget. I can't speak to how sizable they are, but certainly parts of their budgets and even dedicated staff who work on international issues. And in particular, they do a lot of work to support African organizations of the blind. So they might fund positions in Africa to help do advocacy, to help promote more inclusion in, in African countries. And, um, you know, I would love to see um, Americans and Canadians, because I don't think we do uh, a ton of this either in Canada, supporting organizations, perhaps in the Caribbean, you know, countries like Haiti could use some assistance. And so um, putting a little bit more dedicated resources towards international efforts would be, would be amazing, especially, like I say, kind of selfishly from a, a WBU perspective. And um, on, a, on a final side note, I would love to learn more about these committees because it's, it's possible that this is happening or that's the intention behind these committees is to actually um, get involved in the international in the international space. But those are a couple of, of thoughts that I've seen in my, you know, admittedly brief time in this role that I think um, America could potentially learn a little bit from. Thank you so much at the International Relations Committee at the ACB. In fact, we have been working and considering and exploring areas such as Ethiopia and Haiti 
and how mm-hmm. we can actively provide resources and materials in terms of assistive items, canes, trailers, and such. And we've had some past success in that, but there is definitely a lot of scope. And I, as an international student myself, cannot speak enough about how important it is for the knowledge and resources that America has accumulated in terms of blindness. And that said, we do have the 70% unemployment rate even here. So exploring innovative programs such as perhaps affirmative action or subsidizing or otherwise incentivizing the employment of blind folks would be awesome. Thank you so much for engaging us and for all of your thoughtful responses. But we have people in the room and on the Zoom who would also love to ask you questions of their own. So I would now like to open this up to all of the members of the audience who've been so patient and so lovely so far. The way we will structure this is we'll start with a question from Zoom, which Maria will facilitate, and then we will take a question from the room in Omaha, which I will facilitate. And we will alternate and do that as long as we have sufficient time. So over to you, Maria. Thank you, Bhavya, and thank you so much, uh, Mark, as well. I echo uh, thank you for your for your candor and your your thoughtful responses. And you know, I love what you're saying about yes, we have uh, issues that maybe to different degrees, but that there's so much that we have in common as we work toward equality for those who are blind and the fact that we can, uh, you know, all learn from each other that, uh, you know, we there there's sometimes this view of, you know, oh, we're here in uh, some of these countries, quote unquote, you know, Western countries, and you have these other countries, you know, some people will say, oh, they're, they're you know, not as, quote unquote, you know, far along or developed in their, uh, you know, infrastructure, disability support and such. And so I think it is um, so valuable to, you know, point out that there are things that we can learn uh, from them as well, that that is, you know, not entirely um, accurate. So thank you for that. Uh, In terms of these Zoom questions, we do have uh, four questions in Zoom. So uh, this will be fun to alternate. So let's start with Peter. Awesome. So thank you so much for your presentation and your thoughts. And I hope you feel better from your COVID. Uh, um, the timing is never great to have that uh, that uh, condition. So I was curious, you mentioned your work um, uh, in an in, 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 uh, employee resource group in Canada, uh, uh, forming your disability community uh, and you know trying to address the issues that you were experiencing at work. I'm wondering if you could talk about how those experiences, the problems that you were you experienced, intersected with group uh, um, concerns from other groups, and how you work together to address those. And then branching it out further, how do you think um, you talk about this a little bit about disability? But I'm wondering what your thoughts are about uh, how our challenges intersect with other. Uh, uh, non-disabled folks, uh, uh, other underrepresented groups, and how you find that how you find the balance between forming those alliances and not making sure that our concerns don't get lost in the process. Hmm. Yeah, very good questions. Um, for sure, some of the issues um, were blindness specific in the employee resource group. So we in the government, they introduced a new enterprise resource planning system or ERP system. It basically um, handles all of the back end 
And we were concerned pr primarily as, as blind folks around accessibility. Are we going to be able to use this? Are we going to be able to submit our vacation requests as a manager? Am I going to be able to go through the HR hiring process using JAWS? So there were some issues like that, but other ones that were definitely more cross disability issues. So things like, do we have an accessibility, uh, an accommodations policy? And the answer was no, we didn't have any type of policy around um, accommodations. Um, we didn't have any guidelines around, guidelines for managers around accommodations. And those ones are much more cross disability issues. And so we would, we would advocate um, for those types of, of issues as uh, a, an employee resource group that was kind of cross disability. So it was a bit of a mix. Um, and there was probably, I think around 10, 10 blind people and around 60 altogether. So we were a sizable, um, a sizable proportion of the employee resource group, but we had lots of different areas where we could um, collaborate on cross disability types of, of issues. Now on the, like the other thing that we did is there were, we weren't the only employee resource group. We had one for LGBTQ2S plus um, is the acronym we use in Canada. And so we had uh, an employee resource group for people who identified um, in that community. We had an employee resource group for women. We had an employee resource group for indigenous people um, in Canada. And we would work together um, as the employee resource groups to promote different issues that cut across all of those um, things. So like issues around diversity and inclusion, raising awareness, we would hold um, kind of webinars or other types of information sessions to provide information to members of, of the government. And, um, and it, it worked well. I do think you're right to flag that, you know, collaboration does have to be done somewhat carefully because we're often a smaller group in the disability community. And there is a risk that, um, that our issues will take a backseat. And so that, that is something to be sensitive to. Fortunately, at least with those groups, and it may be because those groups were already sensitive to the idea that you can be marginalized and, and kind of excluded, they were already sensitive to that. So it didn't, it wasn't an issue um, in that instance, but it, it ended up being quite, quite a positive situation to, to work with those different groups. Thank you. Bhavya, over to you. All righty, it's my turn. Anybody in the room with a question? Yes. I I realize that um, the Mr. Workman that as a member organization only ACB can participate. But is there any movement where any possible movement where individuals will be able to eventually collaborate with the World Blind Union? Because I'm so passionate about it. I am the um, vice chair of the International Relations Committee. And last year, I attended the Quadrennial World Blind Union Summit uh, virtually. And so I feel that we should be allowed to be observers and to give our um, input on so many different issues. So I would appreciate your comment as to whether there will any, ever be any movement in that um, Vain, thank you. 
Yeah, what a what a great question. Um, and I, yeah, I hearing that people really want to get involved um, like you do, I think it's it's really great to hear. So maybe I'll back up just briefly and explain the General Assembly process because what happens is each country, and it's a somewhat complicated formula, but each country will have a certain number of delegates that they can elect to send to the General Assembly. So in the US, because and it's based on population. So in the US, because of, it's a large population, there are 10 delegates that get chosen to attend the General Assembly. In Canada, our population is smaller, so we can elect four delegates. And those delegates are chosen by the member organizations in that country. Um, and so they, they would be the ones who are sent to the General Assembly to actually vote on, on things. Um, like you mentioned, the last General Assembly was actually virtual. Um, and we, we ended up holding it a year later than we had intended. It, it would normally have been held in June 2020. Of course, that was right when the pandemic was, was um, really heating up. And so it ended up being pushed back for a year and switched to virtual. And um, I'm really glad you were able to, to attend that and participate or at least you know um, hear those discussions. I can tell you that for our next General Assembly, we are looking at a hybrid format. Um, and I will be talking to organizers from ACB to understand learnings because it is a challenge for sure. Um, and our next one won't actually be held until 2025. So hopefully we have a bit of time to, to learn all of the, the tools and the tricks that would make this a successful event. So that's, that's something that we will be doing. Now, the fact that it's hybrid might still mean that only, only the delegates can vote, um, but that doesn't mean that only the delegates can participate in conversations, can be involved um, in the General Assembly. So I think to your point, um, creating, for sure, creating places for observation or for um, webinar discussions like this one that are open to anyone, whether you're a delegate or not, I think is doable. And then the last thing I'll say is we are doing this governance review. I mentioned it this morning that we will be hiring some help to look at our structure and explore how we can modernize it and make it a bit less complicated. And hearing your feedback is super helpful because I think we do need to be looking at ways that, uh, figuring out ways that individuals, whether they're a part of an organization or not, who have an interest in these types of issues can be involved in meaningful ways. Um, you know, we, ha we have social media and so that is one way, but I don't think that's necessarily the best way. We will occasionally do surveys. And so hearing from people um, through surveys can be helpful, but those are just a couple of examples. And, and I think we could, do, we could do more and create better um, opportunities for people like yourself who aren't necessarily a delegate, but who have a passion for these issues and just want to get involved. Actually, one other thought comes to mind. Our committees and our working groups, they will take members, uh, like will be made up of individuals, but those individuals um, admittedly do need to have an organization endorse them. Um, our intention is actually to open it up so that anyone can apply, but you would need a member organization to support your um, candidacy, let's call it, on 
the, uh, the working group, but that may be an opportunity as well to, to get involved is to serve on uh, a working group or a committee on these issues. Thank Hopefully that helps. Thank you, uh, Mark, again for that the honest answer. I'm thrilled to to hear, uh, you know, from an individual level myself that you're, uh, you know, so open to considering ways of improving the process and improving, uh, en enabling engagement uh, with with individuals as well. We have next uh, Sharon on Zoom. Uh, in the same vein as our last speaker, I have to say that I hear about the blind union eh, periodically from ACB. And then it sort of fades again in my consciousness. And I'm wondering if there's even a quarterly or semi-annual newsletter that one could subscribe to, um, some way to keep in touch. When we had the Ukrainian concert, the concert for Ukraine, that, that really got a lot of excitement and a lot of feeling of solidarity with our, with our fellow blind citizens in another country. And obviously those things don't happen all the time, but I was very energized by that and would like to keep that up as an individual. Thank you. Yeah, I, I found that concert to be so incredibly moving. Um, I listened for all 11 hours and um, was just blown away by hearing the comments and also participating on sort of on Twitter and, and reading people's thoughts. So totally agree with you. Lots of energy created and a very moving um, experience. So to the specific question, we did have a quarterly newsletter. It ended up being scrapped before my time. Um, so, you know, sometime in maybe 2021 or 2020, I will admit, I think it probably wasn't, wasn't the best newsletter. It was sort of like a 20 page word document that came out every quarter. Um, not super well designed, not the most engaging content. Um, and so it was scrapped again before my time. Um, and yet, and, but it was not replaced with anything. And so while I agree that like that current form probably wasn't meeting our needs, um, uh, people probably weren't really reading it very often. Um, it wasn't sent out in a way, um, it wasn't like a modern newsletter. Let's put it that way. Like if you're talking a 20 page, um, word document, um, that's a fairly old school type of, of newsletter. So even though it, I think that one wasn't working, it, it wasn't replaced with anything. And I think that's a mistake. And so as I, I talked a little bit about this this morning, that communications is an area we absolutely can do better in. And um, we did just pass a budget and did make an investment in communications. So we will be uh, revamping the newsletter. We'll be looking at our social media, um, I want to do want to do much more uh, around little audio and video type of clips and more content like that. And we will absolutely, um, in the coming months, be revamping uh, that newsletter and putting putting a, a a better, more engaging newsletter out in the future. So I'm glad I'm glad to hear uh, that that's something that you would be interested in. I think it is um, a great way to to communicate. In the meantime, probably your best bet would be. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and you can find us by just searching World Blind Union on, on any of those platforms. Um, not to say like, yeah, I want the newsletter, but in the meantime, that's probably your best bet to kind of see what we're, what we're up to. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for addressing that. I know when I had tried to subscribe and I got the, oops, something went wrong message. I know. <laughs> that, is, that is good to know. All right, back to you, Bhavya. All right, anybody else in Omaha? with a question. 
Well, while the room is thinking, we've got plenty on Zoom. All right, uh, Jeanette, you are next. Good afternoon. My question is a little bit different. Understanding that all countries have different ways of dealing with their issues, whatever they are, I'm curious about whether you are able to operate without the interference of the political state in countries that you deal with. In other words, um, for countries that may be less stable that you're dealing with in different reasons, does that political situation affect you in ways that are of concern? And how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, it's a very interesting one. I'm trying to think. It, I don't want to say, I suspect it will. Like, I, I do think you're right that that's, that can be a factor. I don't think it has been in my time here. Although, you know, one, one thought that comes to mind is some of the blindness organizations are closer to the state, meaning they are maybe less independent the way that like ACB would be a more independent from the state. I'm thinking particularly, I've heard this in Eastern Europe and with respect to Russia, um, that this is a, the associations there are often maybe fully funded by the state or a bit more beholden to the state. Um, I don't know, like I say, I'm, I think this is a f- function of the fact that I haven't been in the role a long, long time. So it hasn't been an issue in terms of affecting our ability to work with the member um, or anything like that. But I do think that there are some organizations that are a little more um, close to their governments. I've heard I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen all the politics yet in my short time here, but I've heard some stories that some countries maybe will get funding from their government to um, want to take over certain regions, you could say. Um, I won't name names, but a country maybe in the Middle East wants to kind of um, um, become the leader within the region and and was offering a lot of money to help make that happen. And we, uh, again, way before my time, but we just had to say, look, we're a democratically run organization. Um, we can't just appoint you as sort of the president or um, let, let you take over. And my understanding is that there was, um, you know, there was, would have been some support from, from governments and that sort of thing. So I'm I worry I'm rambling a little bit. Um, I think it's a really interesting point you raised and one that I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I will experience in the future, but haven't really come across anything quite like that yet, although I've heard some stories. Well, I'm glad to hear that you have not come across that yet. Hopefully that trend continues. All right, back to you, Bhavya. All right, final call for any other questions from folks in the room going once well we do have two questions on zoom so ray go ahead thank you and um uh, good afternoon this is ray campbell second vice president of the american council of the blind and uh since mark couldn't be in the room this afternoon i couldn't shake his hand uh i decided to take it virtually myself up here in the hotel room so mark um 
as you know, um, as we all know, COVID has really exposed a lot of issues with inaccessibility of um, you know, testing and various things here in this country. And certainly even before COVID, we were aware of the issues around durable medical equipment accessibility or lack thereof. Um, <clears throat> ACB has recently been very successful or quite successful, I should say, <clears throat> in uh, getting uh, uh, some access to COVID testing. Uh, I'm wondering what uh, some of the access to medical uh, equipment and services are around the world that uh, WBU uh, is aware of and what kind of work um, that the, the organization is uh, doing or looking to do, working with other countries to help bridge some of those access issues for people who are blind in other parts of the world to medical equipment and services that they need? Another, another good question. I, and here's my perspective. Um, a lot of the leadership in this area is coming from the US. Um, I think we might see some out of Europe. And I, I say that because um, Europe is planning or has recently, I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but is right in the process of adopting accessibility legislation of their own. Um, like I say, America were, was leaders in this area and hopefully um, Europe have had the chance to observe what other countries have done and will bring in legislation that will be even stronger. I think that's, that's the hope. So we may end up starting to see some real um, improvements and innovations coming out of, of Europe. But I, in my experience, because of the, the strength of advocacy organizations and the strength of the human rights legislation in countries um, like the United States and those of Europe, that tends to be where the leadership is. Um, so it's not something that WBU is necessarily uh, leading at this moment, but it is an area where, like I say, where as improvements come out in the US, that we're doing what we can to share that information with other countries and maybe even to pair up organizations or create spaces where an organization like ACB can share what, you know, how, what their approach was um, and maybe even what they were recommending so that um, some of the, the standards or the, um, the improvements to accessibility of these products can be spread around the world. So I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. My view is that it would be largely led by the Americans and my hope is that you know as these improvements roll out because even in Canada like we're we're struggling and we often benefit from the the work that Americans Americans do so as those improvements roll out that we can do our part to make sure that others around the world are aware of them and are able to advocate in their own countries for for similar improvements Thank you. And certainly collaboration is one of the uh, core values of ACB. So I'm sure that is something that will resonate with a lot of our members as well. Uh, next, we'll go to Linda. I was thinking how to, um, how to word my question, but I'll just tell you of an experience and then ask the question. Um, okay. Um, I used to have a cleaning lady that was 
from, you know, from Brazil. She spoke Portuguese and she, her mom still lives uh, somewhere in a suburb near Rio de Janeiro. And I was trying to see if there was any help for her mom, you know, by doing, trying to do research on the computer because she, you know, lost her vision probably six months ago or something like that and lost her husband and had some other issues. And so I don't know. Um, and I also noticed that when I read or heard about the languages that the World Blind Youth Union, you know, helps out, Portuguese wasn't one of them. So please pardon my ignorance, but I kind of like to know, uh, you know, what the deal is there and, and if there's any way that I can pass on any information to this person whose mother is in Brazil. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So our we have three official languages. Um, that would be English, French, and Spanish. And when it's an official language, that basically means that all of our final documentation, things like our strategic plan, our resolutions, our constitution, like those types of documents are all available in those three languages. So you're right that um, Portuguese is not one of them. That's not to say, <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I don't know how those three got chosen. Um, I, I, yeah, it, it probably was a function of when the organization was, was created in 1984. Those were sort of the three dominant um, international languages. Um, you know, like there are probably others that are more spoken or spoken by larger numbers of people, um, Arabic or um, Mandarin or Hindi, for example. Um, so right now those are the three, but we will still, we do have organizations that operate in Portuguese. And so I don't know how easy this would be, but if, if you're able to send me an email and my email is on the website, it's mark, M-A-R-C dot workman, W-O-R-K-M-A-N at W-B-U.N-G-O. Maybe it will be possible to put that in the chat or someone could share it afterwards. Or again, if you just Google me or look me up on the website. I'll have an email there. I'm happy to reach out to our Brazilian member and just try to make a connection um, that way. Um, hopefully that will that will help. I, I, I know what you're talking about. We end up hearing about people who are really struggling and we just wanna be able to connect them to the supports that are there, but it's a little challenging when you don't speak the language. All right, thank you, Mark. Very kind of you to uh, to offer your your contact information there as well. I'll turn it over uh, to Cheryl now. I want to say thank you so much for uh, spending time with us and and answering our questions. Um, the Multicultural Affairs Com Committee uh, within ACV works on issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, I hope that we will have an opportunity to work with you, Mr. Workman, um, on, on some of those issues. And thank you to Maria and Bavia for this opportunity to co-sponsor and to co-lead this, this, this really fantastic um, event. I've learned so much about the World Mine Union. So thank you both. And I will just um, quickly pass along my thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, super interesting questions. I'm so glad that I was able to participate. I'm really disappointed that it wasn't in person, um, but it just means I'll be back again next year and have a chance to meet everyone there.
Absolutely. Yes, we'd love to have you again and to be able to meet in person. And I'd like to also express my thanks on behalf of the International Relations Committee. Uh, you know, we seek to uh, empower those of us uh, who are blind both here in U.S. but also certainly around the world through uh, information sharing and uh, also as Bhavya mentioned the special projects and collaborating and so you know certainly from what you have been saying uh, today the the World Blind Union uh, has a lot certainly a lot in, in common in terms of um, a, a shared mission so it's been uh, very fascinating and interesting for me as well to learn um, so much more about uh, about what you do and, and where the World Blind Union um, is headed and I'd, I'd like to also thank uh, the Multicultural Affairs Committee and uh, Cheryl and her group for uh, working with us to put this together I'd like to thank um, Bhavya and uh, the rest of the members of my committee as well for uh, helping things to run smoothly and coming up with some fabulous questions. Um, I'd like to thank, um, of course, uh, Mark, to thank you for taking some time out of uh, your day to come and speak with us. And we certainly do wish you a, a speedy recovery. I'd like to uh, thank everyone here who's attended in person and in the room. Um, I'd like to thank Monica for hosting. And I would just like to encourage uh, all of you to check those of you who are uh, attending either in person or virtually to check your convention programs for other events that our two wonderful committees have uh, going on for the rest of this convention uh, for international relations tomorrow we have a voices around the world uh, luncheon and that includes a hybrid program hearing uh, sto success stories from four immigrants who are now living and successfully employed here in the US and on Thursday during the general session uh, from 12.15 to 12.30 p.m. Central Time, we have the presentation and interview with the winner of our International Voices contest in this is our inaugural year for the same. So we would uh, welcome and encourage you to attend our events and the Multicultural Affairs Committee certainly has wonderful uh, events planned as well for the rest of conventions. So I just want to appreciate you for your frankness and thoroughness and clarity and for taking out time out of your Sunday evening to be with us and have this utterly fascinating conversation. And we all wish you a speedy recovery. Thank you. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your convention, everyone.